If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius erupted burying the Roman city of Pompeii under a blanket of volcanic ash. The disaster preserved the city for more than 1,500 years, becoming a time capsule of Roman life in the 1st century AD. In today's episode, we're exploring these remarkable Roman remains in the company of the archaeologist Dr Sophie Hay, who has spent much of her career researching Pompeii. As always with our Everything You Wanted to Know series, the questions are a combination of popular internet search queries and those that you've submitted via our social media. Putting those questions to Sophie was BBC History Magazine editor Rob Attar. Sophie, could we begin with the basics and one popular internet search question, which is basically, where is Pompeii? Yes, well, it should definitely start with, with location, location. So Pompeii is situated in a region of Italy called Campania. And it's about 20 kilometres or so southeast of Naples. So it's sort of broadly on the, on the coast, uh, on the uh, western side of Italy. Now, just as a follow-up, I imagine listeners will often hear Pompeii mentioned in connection with another town of Herculaneum. What's the relationship between the two? And, and are we always really talking about both of these sites when we're talking about Pompeii? I think a lot of people use Pompeii as the sort of umbrella term for 
all the Vesuvian sites, aside from Herculaneum, there are also villa sites and other sort of larger settlements. But actually, in fact, the, the two are so different. They, they both got destroyed at the same time. But in fact, you know, what remains and the nature of the town um, originally was, was very different. Herculaneum, much more a sort of popular destination resort town, if you like, and Pompeii much more a working environment for it, like they had a port. So it's much more a sort of working working town. But yes, the, generally, I think people do tend to use Pompeii, which is a, it's a shame for Herculaneum because it does get overlooked and it gets overlooked by tourists when they come to visit because everyone's heard of Pompeii. And not everybody then sort of slides down the road to Herculaneum. And I mean, do you think that's in some way legitimate? Is Pompeii a more important or interesting historical site, or is it almost a quirk of history that this is the one that we always think about? Well, personally, I'm obviously a Pompeianist. So <laughs> it's much better than Herculaneum. It's, I think it's it's the scale of Pompeii. Um, what we have from the remains of Herculaneum is much, much smaller, only a few insular blocks, whereas in Pompeii, We've got about 66 hectares of of site. So I think for most people to understand a Roman town, it's much easier to do in Pompeii. And obviously there's a lot more to see, so your day gets filled. And so I think, yes, I think I think in modern terms, people kind of think of Pompeii as, as the main thing, the main event. And sort of in, in the past, you know, the Grand Tour visitors went there and they actually went to both both cities, but it was much easier to see things in Pompeii at that time because it was being uncovered sort of from from the top down. Whereas Herculaneum, there were a lot of tunnels, so it ha- it conjured up less the idea of the Roman town just in its presentation. So the Bourbons were were tunneling through um, Herculaneum, and there it it didn't have that sort of grandeur that Pompeii has. So yes, Pompeii has kind of overshadowed it, and and Herculaneum is the sort of sorry cousin, if you like, but not actually in real life. I think I think both have so much potential to give us information about, about the Roman world and in very different ways. And I think I think there's always this difference um, between them that is is kind of lost sometimes and overlooked. Now another popular search query is when and how was Pompeii destroyed? Uh, right, easy, easy answer. It's the one date I do know, AD 79. <laughs> um, as to the precise date, there's still quite a lot of good hardcore discussion about that. It's uh, it's a topic that gets quite a lot of press as well. We have letters from Pliny the Younger, and he is he is the nephew of Pliny the Elder, who was who was the great um, sort of naturalist. And he gives, he writes 17 years later to a friend of his, of his uncle and describes the eruption of Vesuvius, um, the volcano immediately to the north of Pompeii. And in it, he describes, and it is our only eyewitness account. He describes at about one o'clock, this huge sort of plume, uh, this sort of cloud sort of erupting out of the mountains at Things had happened in the morning. There had been earth tremors and things like that. So there had been a sort of forewarning of, of this. But but people were looking at it and didn't know what it was. They'd never seen this. An eruption that happened previous to this one was was in the, was in the Bronze Age. It was about one thousand six hundred BC. So there's no there's no living memory of a, of an eruption. So they're sort of staring at this, and it continues and it grows and it grows up to about thirty kilometers high. This this cloud, 
and it's got ash in it and bits of volcanic debris. And then it starts raining pumice stone. And these little pellets are basically falling from the sky. And this lasts for something up to about 18 hours. There's there's periods of, of calm a bit in between certain phases, but essentially this is ongoing. But by the next morning, there are more tremors and basically this column collapses. So this 30-kilometre-high column of, of, of ash and material collapses. And these what are called pyroclastic surges start racing down the hillside. So you've got Pompeii sitting at the bottom, which is being covered and filled. And it's it's a kind of it's a very weird thing to think that your house is filling with little stones, but this is what is happening. The streets are, your houses are, buildings have started to collapse under the weight of this material. So there's already a lot of drama in in the town and, and Pliny the Younger describes it as as being like nighttime. And you know, we're in the middle of the day. And the, the sun has been blotted out. And he says it's like being in an enclosed room with the lights off. So, you know, it must have been frantic in the town at the time. Um, people can't see where they're going. They're trying to escape. Uh, they've got stones piling up in their house. And then, yes, these pyroclastic surges and a series of them, about six or seven of them, um, start racing down the hillside. And it's about number four, I think, that actually reaches Pompeii. And these pyroclastic surges are basically really fast-moving clouds of stone and ash and material and gases. And it comes shooting down the side of Vesuvius. And basically the temperature is, is something like sort of 300 degrees. And uh, and it's moving at a rate of, of sort of 200-whatever kilometres an hour. So there's kind of no hope at that point. If you haven't left town already, then, you know, this is what finally buries and destroys Pompeii and sort of seals it. That's the eruption. And the the, the date of the eruption, as I said, was is sort of contentious because what we have from Pliny's letters are various copies made in the in the medieval period. And these have all been copied and the scribes kind of, you know, have to negotiate the writing uh, bits that are missing and we have many copies and one of them which is basically the best surviving copy has the date of the 24th of August and so that has been sort of become canon if you like and everyone quotes the 24th of August is the day in AD 79 when the volcano erupted but in fact there are other copies and they say the 24th of October the 3rd of December sort of 20th of November you know that there's varieties of dates but because the 24th of August has has become this sort of traditional date it's used um, over and over again and yet the archaeological evidence uh, strongly suggests that it was it had to be later in the year Uh, so we get into things like the fact that we have pomegranates that are that have been picked off the tree and were ripe we have their carbonized remains in Pompeii and uh, and a plantis, which is a, a villa site nearby, and these this kind of suggests that it can't have been August because pomegranates don't ripen until later on in the autumn. So we have a sort of conflicting evidence. We also think that there may have been the grape harvest had happened already because we find evidence of grapes. I mean, they when they press the grapes, we they found evidence of the grapes still on the floor. So, and that again happens much later in the year than than August, and tends much more towards uh, an October date. So, exactly when in AD seventy nine, we can still debate, but it's definitely seventy nine AD. <laughs> and I think you may have actually answered 
another question that we had come in because someone had asked about why would the Romans build a city so close to an active volcano? And I suppose your answer would be they didn't know it was an active volcano. No, we don't think they knew. Um, Strabo had had kind of wondered about it and was quite curious about it, but I don't think it was transmitted sort of amongst the general public. I think what they knew, they knew they were in a special place because their land was so fertile. And so, you know, they probably thought they were blessed. They had they had these rich soils so that they could grow their vines and their orchards and all their food stuffs so that they weren't getting from the sea and animals. And so they knew there was something special about this area. But to say sort of to ask why they did, apart from the land, you've got to kind of look at modern times and, you know, there's three million people who live in Naples at the moment and and we are well versed in the fact that it's an active volcano within living memory the last eruption was 1944 during the second world war and yet people I mean and now I'm talking Naples and of course you know the whole of that bay is just jam-packed full of people so I mean the Romans were slightly ignorant we're not but we still choose to live there so it's uh, you know there is something magical about the area it's a lovely place to live and and I think the fertility the fertility of the soil is is a huge factor in in sort of you know keeping the populace well fed so I think that kind of supersedes any sort of danger certainly nowadays and uh, and in ancient times they uh, they had some earthquakes but it, you know it wasn't enough to to actually scare them off. So yeah, I'd say I'd say their their land was the thing that was keeping them there. And Shane Bat on Twitter asked, were there any warnings of a pending eruption? Well, immediately beforehand, so the sort of the night before the actual eruption, there were larger tremors um, and and earthquakes. But this is an area and and the sources say the same. Seneca writes that uh, that Campania was sort of never safe from these evils. You know, they had a lot of earthquakes and a lot of tremors, but, you know, minimal damage was done or if damage was done to buildings, they could repair it. Maybe there were some fatalities, but it was... It wasn't something that that was very new to them. I think the scale of it was sort of increased and they were sort of, you know, obviously, you know, we haven't had it this bad before, but there's been a continual cycle of of earthquakes. And they did have a major earthquake in uh, 63 AD, or some people think 62. Another date of Pompeii that's never quite qualified. So (laughs) we have debate over the date of the eruption and we also have a uh, debate over the date of the major earthquake that does get recorded. Yes, I think I think they were sort of used to these kind of weird earth movements and just went about mending whatever needed mended. So another popular internet search query is how many people died at Pompeii? That's a good question. <laughs> and one, we, we're not sure. A, because we haven't uncovered the whole of Pompeii, certainly, and certainly not in Herculaneum. But so far, we have, I think it's about 1,200-ish skeletons. And of those, I can't remember the exact figure, but it's it's about 90-odd uh, casts have been made into, into plaster casts. So we have a tiny, tiny representation of, of people left in Pompeii, given that the population of the town was probably somewhere between... 10, 12, 15,000 at maximum. I know that numbers like 20,000 are are banded about. And it's a very hard thing to calculate how many people were living because 
we you, a lot of people are invisible you know we can have we have the houses we have partially some upper floors but we don't quite know how many people to a room we have no idea so population is always very hard to guess but i th- i think we're quite happy with sort of yeah between 12 and 15000 so if we've only got you know 1200 bodies that's a lot of people we don't have even allowing for the for the for the area that hasn't been excavated yet and the potential for for there to be more found there but it does suggest a lot got away well actually yeah we had a question on that from Liz Falston on Facebook and she wanted to know whether there were any survivors of the eruption and it sounds like there there clearly were and also how did they get away from Pompeii well We've always sort of known at the back of our heads there are survivors because literally, yes, we haven't we haven't found their found their remains. And we have to also think a little bit in terms of in in the early excavations, they may not have been so interested in in some of the skeletons. They were more after, you know, the the nice frescoes, the statuary. So some I'm assuming some bodies were found, but we don't know about them. But even accounting for that, we still do. We still know that there were survivors. But a recent study was done uh, a couple of years ago on the idea of the survivors and looking for names that we find in Pompeii and Herculaneum. And do we find those names elsewhere? It's not foolproof, but this study was was the best ever sort of attempt to try and, and find links between possible families having moved away from Pompeii, resettled elsewhere and and then thrived and then we we come across their names later. So essentially they didn't get very far when they when they if they did escape. So we have names that kind of we can find correlations for in the ancient towns in Cuma which is just to the west of Naples, a lot in Naples obviously, but in the bay area basically in the bay of Naples area. So although they moved they didn't they didn't move you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. They're, we're talking sort of under 50 kilometres, which is very different because when I, I actually lived in Pompeii when I was working there and I had letters through the door saying, you know, if there is an eruption, in the event of that, people in Pompeii were going to be transported up to Genoa, which is, you know, right up in the north of of, of Italy. And I, and it's sort of mind-boggling to think of, of sort of transporting people up to to an area of Italy they have no idea about completely different I mean culturally quite different and now I think they're going to go to Sardinia or something I can't remember it was it's just it's sort of a bizarre idea to 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 move that far away and evidently in the Roman times they they kind of wanted to stay in the area they knew and and liked but yeah there's there's one one lovely example that I I went to track down which is a family called the Ancari and uh, there's a in Pompeii. There's a little graffito on a column in the in the gymnasium in the in the big palaestra, and it's and it's got the name Ankari sort of scratched into the plaster. And then in Naples, there's this wonderful altar stone that's been reused and it's stuck in a wall in a back street in Naples. So there's you know there's bags for recycling underneath it and a broom and, and a mop and things. And then there's this beautiful Roman altar, which has the names of two sons of the Ankari. And it's a sort of memorial to them. And again, we you can always say, but is this, you know, is Ankari the, the smith of, of the, you know, Roman times? Is it a very popular surname? And there just happen to be other, other ones of this, of this family name or is it a survivor and they've gone on to have children and these children are then sort of memorialised in this in this altar? 
We don't know, but it's, it's, you know, it's the only way we can attempt to find survivors, but for absolute sure that there were people who, who got away, who must have left quite early on during the eruption to, to flee the city and, and, and get relocated elsewhere. Now, moving on to the aftermath of the eruption, Chris on Twitter wanted to know, to what extent did rescue work happen after the eruption? Did people dig for bodies? Um, yeah, no, this is a good question because I think, I mean, we, we, we don't know what the sort of public reaction is because we don't have, you know, we didn't have Twitter. Um, but we we know from some of the sources that, that Titus was actually quite good about coming, you know, coming together and, and sorting out a sort of a, a relief package is probably too strong a word, but some form of scheme whereby he sent down commissioner, uh, commissioners, essentially, of, of sort of the consuls down to Pompeii to, to redistribute land. So basically they were looking for land of those that had died in Pompeii and had no heirs, and they wanted to redistribute it to the, the sort of the afflicted people, the, the the survivors who who you know needed something. I mean, they knew that they couldn't really save anyone at that point, but they had a they had a plan for what happens next. Cassius Dio says that Titus, uh, who was emperor at the time, actually came down to Campania. And, and wanted to be sort of on the scene of the disaster, if you like. And whether Dio is being a bit sentimental or, or favourable to Titus, but he does say that he sort of seemed to sort of love, love these people like a father would love their children, and he showed great compassion. But then, funnily enough, he was then called back to Rome during his visit. He was called back to Rome because there was a big fire. So he then had to go back and and see the you know the next disaster. So not quite you know not unlike what happens now, where you know you get your prime minister or your president turning up to the scene of a disaster to kind of you know sort of say how sorry they are and, and say you know everything's going to be okay. The, 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 it seems that the emperor was supposed to you know his role was was also part to sort of come come to the come to the aid of of people. Now I don't think we have any evidence that that they're sort of officially they dug for bodies or survivors but we do have evidence that people went back to the site we do have tunnels that we know are are quite old and people were probably going back for possessions you know a, a lot of what we've then find later in Pompeii is is collections of goods in corners of rooms. So for instance, in, in one of the houses that was dug in the 80s, they, they left a, a big ramp of, of the volcanic material in order to sort of wheelbarrow up and down the material out during the excavation. You know, it was a nice big sort of elite house, but they weren't finding particularly elite goods. Um, and when they finally cleared the ramp, they found stashed in the corner all the silverware. And I think people were moving things in their house in order to say, right, well, we'll come back and we'll grab this. And if we leave it all in one place, it'll be much easier. Uh, so I think people had sort of the mentality of, you know, we want to go and rescue our belongings that we've fled without. There's one example on a house uh, of a Greek inscription that says Domus Pertusa, which means sort of house excavated. And this could suggest that somebody had come back and they were maybe routinely going through houses rather than going back to their own one, but routinely going through houses to try and, you know, rob people of their <laughs> of their possessions. And, you know, they've kind of labelled it as, you know, I've done this one, 
don't bother going back in there. I've I've got everything <laughs> I needed out of that one. So that may be a sign that that people came back. But I think we do have enough evidence of people coming back at the time, but not we don't have any official sort of salvage operation, if you like. Uh, they were interested in more in in sorting out the, the land and redistributing land, but not. It's it's under four metres of, of material. Unlikely there's going to be a survivor at that point. If we could talk a little bit about Pompeii prior to the disaster, Hugh Burkmeyer on Facebook wanted to know, how important was Pompeii before it was destroyed? Would we know about it at all today if it wasn't for the eruption? That's an interesting question. I, I mean, how how it would be known today if it hadn't been destroyed, I, I think it's probably an impossible answer uh, to give. But at the time, I was brought up with the idea that, that Pompeii was just another run-of-the-mill Roman town and we wouldn't definitely wouldn't have known about it unless the volcano had happened and it had, you know it was destroyed and we, and we now know about it. But actually, I think the more I've worked there and the more I've travelled sort of generally around the Roman Empire, I think Pompeii was pretty special. It was a working town for sure, but the level of craftsmanship, if you look at um, the the possessions they had, you know, even from sort of pots and pans, basically. But the frescoes, the mosaics, a lot of them are being copied from from Rome. But the the the, the quality is is great. And I know it's hard to compare Pompeii with other places because preservation in Pompeii gives us a lot more. So we look at other places around, uh, you know, in North Africa or or in the East and we think, or Roman Britain, and we think, oh, well, of course it's better. But I do think it was a sort of more special town than, than I had been sort of led to believe. But whether we would know about it now, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I think uh, that's, yeah, that's a kind of a question that can't be answered, if you like. But it's a good question still. Maybe somebody else can. But yeah, I do think I think Pompeii was more special than we give it credence for. And I think it's too easy to, to throw it away as, as this was just, you know, your average working town. I just think that there was something special going on. And in Herculaneum, to be fair, I think I think the, the, the level and the quality and also just, you know, infrastructure, the management of water and things like that. I just think that's not every single town had this level of existence. So I think it was pretty special, but I may be very biased. So do you think that means we need to be a bit cautious about using Pompeii as a window into the life of the average Roman or the average Roman town? I th- yeah, I think, yes, exactly. It's a kind of a double-edged thing, isn't it? I do believe that it does give us a great opportunity to see how daily life sort of very generally took place. I don't think it was that special that that things were happening completely differently there in terms of, you know, living. And I think we would be absolutely foolish to to not pick up that, that scene of daily life. We're so, you know, the, the sources tend to talk about the elite and the emperor and, you know, fixated on that. And Pompeii, Herculaneum um, and the other sites give us this incredible window into into daily life and seeing trades happen uh, we see shops we see bars we've got all the sort of uh, objects that were in these places we've got uh, laundrettes we've got uh, houses where there were workshops in them so we can see metal working glass working I, I think I think all these things if if we were just to say you know well maybe we don't know the the relevance of Pompeii at the time 
forget about it. We'd be idiots. So no, it's incredibly important to see those little glimpses, even of of, of slaves, which are you know invariably kind of invisible. <laughs> we get to see you know how these towns would have worked with slaves. We can see that there are shackles that slaves were in. So you know we get the sort of full spectrum of you know freedmen um, or a slave made freedmen come good, and then we see the the, the the awful side of, of, you know, one being kind of incarcerated. And we get, I don't know, I just think, yeah, we get to see it. And on a scale that's huge, you know, we don't have very many entire Roman towns from the first century. You know, it, it really is a, a window into, into life in the first century AD for absolute sure. Um, and yeah, no, it's been incredibly important for us to sort of, to learn from that. And yes, more difficult to project it on a, on a massive scale, but I think it gives us it gives us a real opportunity to to learn about yes those daily lives and yeah the tr- sort of the people who who don't get mentioned elsewhere the bar owners the uh, shopkeepers um, and things like that I think they they suddenly shine down there which is which is great and actually on, on that note we had um, a question from Miniet twenty six on Instagram which was simply what was Pompeii like before the eruption. I mean, obviously that's a broad question, so perhaps you could highlight a few particularly interesting facets of life in Pompeii. Okay, so yes, so Pompeii is basically a port town. So you have to imagine that it was, it did have a port. It's now quite a distance from the coast, but it did have a port. And so there's ships coming from um, all over the world to, to, to drop off um, their cargo. That means you've got sailors coming on off off the ships into the town. So you've got this really kind of nice mix of of people. Also, Pompeii itself is full of of Romans, but there are some Greeks there, and you know, surely there are some people from from the east who've come, you know, with silks or whatever they're they're bringing. So it's a nice kind of melting pot of people and 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 a population, a sort of big population that that turns over. So that I think that's that's kind of quite a nice. A nice thing about Pompeii is, is yes, it's kind of quite dynamic in its in its status. In terms of sort of specifics, I, I think what you get from visiting Pompeii is this sense of, of of life on the streets, and I think that's one of the most important things it can give us. It, it, it stops us thinking that you know life happened either you know in the Senate or it happened in the home. I think you get this impression that the sort of of neighbourhoods of streets, uh, you know, there are lots of shrines in the streets, there are fountains in the streets. And I think you get a much better picture of this sort of community life happening outdoors rather than behind closed doors. And I, I, I don't know if you get that in many places, but Pompeii for me and all the signs on, on, the, on the walls, the political campaign messages, messages about um, gladiator fights. So I think from Pompeii, what you get is is this sense of, of of a real kind of yeah dynamic a dynamic city, but 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 living outside a lot more than you think of the Roman house and you think of the Roman temples and you think of you know you think very much inside and okay the forum is is outside. But I just love this idea of of a neighbourhood community and the streets around it bit bustling with life and, and you know carts coming down rattling down and I think. For me, anyway, when I visit Pompeii, that's what I kind of I think that's one of the most important messages it gives is is that sort of difference of idea of of where people are living. They're not just in their houses with the doors closed. Now, um, Xenophon 
K on Instagram was interested in the role of women in Pompeii. And their question was, was the life of women any different in Pompeii than in Rome or other Roman colonies? Um, I don't think so. I think <laughs> I think the role of women is, is misunderstood often from the start, because if you were just to read the sources, you would get the impression that, that women were either promiscuous or sort of domestic goddesses. And and those two extremes were, were all there were about women. So that kind of is is how a lot of people view Roman women. But in fact, when you kind of get below the surface, you find out that that Roman women are are working and and in fact, you know, just even if they're running a household, they need to be literate. And they need to have numeracy because they need to do the house accounts. They need to know how much money is going on food. Uh, they need to write lists of what is needed in the house. And then it goes on to, you know, do they own businesses? Well, absolutely, they they do own businesses. But it's not it's not widely regarded as as a good thing by by the men. <laughs> um, so I mean, the men writing, but in society, it's not quite true at all. And I think one of my favourite, the one of the women in Pompeii that we know about is called Julia Felix, and she is a freed woman. So she's not an elite. She's not a high priestess who's you know sort of well known in the town and well sort of high up in the ranks in the town. She's a freed woman, and she comes to buy two insular blocks. And these blocks are quite large. They're, they're normally got about sort of nine or 10 houses in them. She buys two of them and then joins them together, which is absolutely unheard of, and makes one of the largest properties in Pompeii. And then we know about her. And I kind of, I really like her because she seems like a sort of savvy entrepreneur who, you know, hasn't been granted the best life, hasn't come from a wealthy family. But on the side of her building, and it looks like it probably happened just after the earthquake in, in 62 AD, she, she writes that she's renting out property within her own property. So she's got a series of shops and upstairs apartments that she wants to rent out, and she's willing to rent them out for five years. She has a bathhouse that you can come and use, you know, for money. And she only wants respectable people. I like the fact that she cuts out you can forget the sort of the hoi polloi. I want, I want respectable people. But she's obviously having to make money somehow. She's only a freed woman. She hasn't got closets of money somewhere. And she's taken it upon herself to, to start a sort of business of, of, of renting out her property. So I like those kind of stories from Pompeii is that, yeah, you get, you get that tiny little detail that you don't get in other places about, you know, A, we learn about rental property, great, but also a woman is doing this. And that's quite unusual because Roman law usually states that women can't really do their own thing without a guardian or a man involved. And obviously she's put her name up there and says, you know, I'm doing all of this. So, you know, it seems that Roman law is, is a little bendable in reality. And I, I quite like things like that. Um, but we do know of, of other women in Pompeii who, Eumachia is from a very elite wealthy family and she uh, gives money to build a huge marketplace on the forum and she slaps her name up there to let everybody know that she's done it. But I mean, that's less incredible to me. I mean, that's quite normal to have an elite woman adding to, to public munificence, if you like. So it's the story of, of, the, of Julia and her sort of entrepreneurial skills, which kind of is, is nice about Pompeii. You get, you get those little details. 
Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I know it's a cemetery and I know there was a human disaster there, but as I'm working, I'm working with, with their objects while they were alive. And so it feels very lively to me. And I think any visitor to Pompeii feels the energy of the town and what was happening in it and, and the places and the monuments. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, another popular search query is, when was Pompeii discovered? And on a related note, we had a question from Luke uh, Gauchi on Instagram, who says, Pompeii was a fairly large town, so why would the memory of it vanish from the historical record? Okay, that's uh, that's that's all a big question. I'll start with, with it vanishing. I don't believe it ever really vanished. There's a map called the Putinger Table, and it's a 12th century copy of a 4th century uh, Roman map. And on it, there are the names of Herculaneum, Aplontis, which is this supposedly possible big imperial villa, between Herculaneum and Pompeii. And Pompeii is mentioned. And I think Stabia as well, which is just further around the coast. So all these names are still there in the 4th century and they've been copied onto this later map. So, you know, that's 300 years later, 200 years later, that these, 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 these place names are still there. They're still in living memory. Maybe people don't know exactly where these places are in the sense of we don't know exactly the location of them, but they know within the area. And we still get Pompeii mentioned on 16th century maps. It still has Pompeii written. And locally, Pompeii is known as La Civita, which means the settlement. And basically, there is a mound, because other people have cultivated around it, but there is a mound left over Pompeii. 
and it is known as the settlement. We've also got to sort of understand that there's there's a slight different interest in finding a, an archaeological town. I mean, we're, we're all obsessed with it now and we'd love to go and visit them. But at the time, it wasn't the, the biggest interest that people had in rediscovering these things. And it was actually rediscovered by accident in in about 1594. They were digging a canal. So this is sort of now moving on to the, to the rediscovery of it. They were digging a canal to link the Sarno River with a munitions work further along the coast. And the quickest way to build this canal was in a vague straight line. And it went straight through this mound called La Civita. And an architect called Domenico Fontana was digging and he was ploughing through this mound and he kept reporting that he was hitting walls. And he was quite annoyed about this. You know, it was one thing to dig through earth, but to keep hitting walls and he'd have to kind of remove all the material. And they were finding objects as well. And basically in 1594, they wanted the canal built and it was, you know, it was being tunnelled through this, this hillside and they didn't want anything to stop it. And also it's the time of the Inquisition and this, you know, the idea of an ancient town didn't really fit with, with Inquisition ideology. So, you know, they don't want to, to sort of talk about it. So they're like, keep going, keep going. So they do keep going. And eventually, you know, I think they know that they're in some sort of settlement. They find an inscription later that says um, it's got Pompey. Pompey written on it, and they think it's the villa of Pompey, perhaps, but they don't realise they're in this big town. And then it isn't really until the 18th century where we get the first official excavations. First official excavations happen in 1748. They've already found Herculaneum at this point, which was found by accident in 1708. A farmer sinks his well and starts pulling out marble, um, and the local prince in the area decides it'd look quite nice in his his villa that he's constructing on the coast. So he asks for the, for the tunnels in Herculaneum to be enlarged and then, you know, please go and grab as much as you can. So they already knew about Herculaneum, but it was really hard to dig. Uh, the, the ash that fell on Herculaneum didn't get any pumice stone at all. It just got the pyroclastic surges. And this ash compacted basically into uh, into a rock so burrowing through that is really difficult. And I think they all sort of got tired and thought it'd be easier to go and dig Pompeii. And just at that moment, a farmer was ploughing his land. And this is another reason I don't think it can have been forgotten completely. I think ploughing does bring up material. <laughs> I've worked in enough ploughed fields to know. And a farmer was ploughing and one of these uh, this sort of marble column got flipped out of the ground. And it's quite an unusual column. It's a rectangular one with fluting. And in fact, comes from the house of, of Julia Felix. And suddenly everyone got very excited because this looked great. Um, and so they all started digging. Um, and so that was the first sort of proper excavations that were happening in 1748. And then, you know, then it caused a storm. People were, you know, were writing about the fines. The the royal household were taking the fines to their own private museum. They were very secretive about things. And again, the idea of an archaeological park, as we as we understand it, absolutely didn't exist. You know, there weren't there weren't tourists coming to these places. They were scholars of history of art, who then later came during the uh, during the grand tour. They were the ones who were interested, and it wasn't necessarily you know, a big thing for the public. But then that started changing. And under French rule in the early 19th century, 
it was kind of thought, well, maybe people might be interested because it is kind of cool. Whereas originally they'd actually reburied what they found. So they dug the amphitheatre in Pompeii. They didn't really find very much. So they actually just covered it back with soil, as they did with the house of Julia Felix as well. They, they just reburied it. It seemed, you know, nobody wanted to go and see it. So later on, when the French were in, in rule in Naples, it was actually the... Uh, sister of Napoleon, Caroline, who who thought, you know, people might be more interested. And there were lots of holes in Pompeii where people had been digging and she thought to actually join them all up and and open up the road so that people could actually visit as a as a as a park, as it were. So she was invaluable for for making that sort of the rediscovery sort of a public thing as opposed to a very, very private endeavor. And and you know, scholars had gone to the museum in the private palace of Charles Bourbon and and they weren't allowed to take notepaper in with them. Uh, you know, they weren't allowed to sketch things. They had to just remember. Um, and again, Caroline kind of wanted to record things and make things more public. So she got architects in to start drawing things like fountains and how the excavations were proceeding. So, you know, she did definitely change, change the concept. And then from then on, it was, it just sort of grew in, in popularity. And then I think the next kind of surge of, of interest must have been when they, when they first made the casts. Then the human element really did kind of strike a chord with people and seeing victims in, in the positions where they died changed changed a lot of people's views of of this disaster it came became less about the the objects than it and then more about the people and and the yeah the sort of human tragedy so that's a very long way of saying how it was rediscovered but there we go <laughs> and and on that last note one of the things that makes Pompeii interesting is it's so many different things it's a tourist attraction it's an archaeological site but it's also a cemetery to some extent and is it quite difficult to try and balance those different statuses of Pompeii when we consider it and work in it today? Yeah, I think, I mean, having worked there, I feel, I just, I don't, I don't feel the Romans as dead there. And I think that's my kind of, I can't, I know it's a cemetery and I know there was a human disaster there, but as I'm working, I'm working with, with their objects while they were alive. And so it feels very lively to me. And I think any visitor to Pompeii, feels the energy of the town and what was happening in it and and the places and the monuments it's very much a town of the living i mean obviously there are cemeteries outside but i'm not sure how much how much people do sense that it's yeah it is a cemetery essentially um the casts go quite a long way to to help bring those two um, ideas together and certainly when I worked there I had to walk past a, a group of, of casts every morning and you know it does it, there's a flash of yes we mustn't forget that this is you know a sad place but also as I said I think the scale of it and everything about the town is is very much a sort of bustling living place but yeah I think it should never be forgotten this sort of absolute horrendous tragedy that happened but yeah we have we have the chance now to 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 make good of of that natural disaster and and move move on but not quite (laughs) so we had a question from jonathan best on twitter and he wanted to know what important facts about roman life would be unknown to us were it not for pompeii wow well that's that's a huge huge question um I, i think i mean i've talked a bit before i think it's it's 
I think it's the minutiae of, of, of daily life that we, we wouldn't have. We have details of daily life that we simply don't get. And on the, on the scale that we get them in Pompeii, on another site, you might get a nice frying pan. But in Pompeii, we get not only the saucepans, the frying pans, but we get the carbonized remains of foodstuffs. We have all the frescoes that help us put together much more of daily life. The, the Pompeiians seemed food obsessed, to be fair. They, you know, they were growing it in their town. They were eating it. They were selling it. But then they had frescoes of it. And so we can see that they what they were eating. And then we, you know, excavate in their gardens and we find the carbonized remains of peaches and plums and cabbages and, you know, vines that were growing in the town. So I think we get this, this kind of microscopic view where we don't get in, in other places of, the, of this detail. And I think that's what is kind of important about, about Pompeii. I think it's, yeah, it's seeing the detail. And again, it's of the of daily life, the people who don't sort of appear in, in every town. They don't appear in inscriptions. Um, we have all the graffiti. I mean, that's a whole other way of, of finding out about people and their thoughts. And, you know, anyone can do a graffito. Anyone can get a, uh, an object and scratch something into a wall or paint something. And or this is, you know, the, the voice of the great sort of the, the masses rather than the imperial stamp of, of, a, of an official inscription, I think. So we get these voices from the past as well. And, you know, there's a lot of puns happening. They're quite humorous. Uh, they're very rude. And I just, I think that brings again that sort of sense of a whole dimension of life that we don't get in other places that don't have the same kind of preservation and steering much more away from you know the grand buildings like you know the the temples and the basilica and things like that i i think we get yeah this this, this sort of little little nod at, at daily life and and real people and i think that's that's what's so special about i mean all all those places that you know herculaneum pompeii like is is that is that little glimpse a couple of times in in answers you've given so far you've mentioned the frescoes and there's a popular internet search query about why why is Pompeii important for the study of Roman art again I think it's scale I think we we have a vast collection we have frescoes from other places absolutely but it's it's the it's the scale that we have them in and we have it in a very known time frame so we know that it nothing none, none of the art post dates AD 79 so we're kind of clear on that and I think because of that a scholar called Mao was able to kind of look at them and, and define styles. So we have four styles going over a period of uh, from the second century BC to AD 79, roughly. And so now we, you know, when we find a fresco of a similar style, we can vaguely date it. And I think it's given us a sort of chronology of how painting style changed, how fashions changed. And, in, and it's interesting in some places. So the House of the Fawn, which is a huge, huge, one of the largest houses in Pompeii, it has, stylistically, it has a decoration of the second century BC, still still going. It was upkept. And so, you know, what does that tell you? It tells you, you know, is there a sense of sort of, you know, the antique? Does that hold prestige? You know, this massive elite house and they haven't they haven't changed their furniture for, 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 for ages. So... I think I think it's the scale, and we learn we learn you know about their taste. 
as well. You know, Ovid suddenly, the stories, the mythologies, the Greek mythologies suddenly come into, into fruition in the first century um, AD because Ovid tells of these stories of, of Greek uh, myths and suddenly they're appearing everywhere in, in frescoes and this becomes a real fashion thing to have. And obviously it's like, oh, well, I want what my neighbour's having, so I want one too. And the quality is not always the same, I must say. I mean, it is outstanding, but there are some there are some corkers in there. But I think it can tell us, I think it tells us quite a lot about, yes, that sort of a change happening, but very specific to the first century AD, essentially. I think that's where we get the the, the biggest changes. But yeah, I think, yeah, for Roman art, it's 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 a collection that can be poured over and studied in, in a million different ways. And, and we mustn't forget flooring as well, mosaics, flooring changes too. So decoration in general does change. And we have this kind of little window to see it changing. We still, yeah, we still have evidence from, yeah, the third century BC to, to the, to the first century AD. And I think, I think that's kind of unique um, in a sense. So I think, yeah, that's, that's what it gives us and plenty more, I should imagine. (laughs) Um, And we had a question from False Snow on Instagram. Their question was, how much more is there still to discover at Pompeii? So we still have one third of the city. So we have um, 66 hectares that is that is uncovered at the moment. And there's still one third that is still buried completely by the volcanic material. And in fact, when I worked there, there was a little farm on the top and they were still growing little tomatoes and, and, and lettuces and things like that. It was still kind of a working working land. And I think when you're walking around Pompeii, you don't necessarily notice it immediately because there's so much else to see. But in fact, yeah, you're missing out on a third of the a third of the town uh, because we have the perimeter wall. So this is how we know uh, how how big the the city was. So we know its limits, but within the within that area, uh, one third is still uncovered, and they're only just really tinkering a little bit on the edges of this of this area recently with with recent excavations that have been happening uh in the last i guess in the last two or three years uh in region five because and this is all for conservation because the sides of this it's a four meters high of of an escarpment basically between the roman excavated level and the top of the volcanic material that was was dumped on top so you're talking four meter high five meter high escarpment which after a bit of rain loosens up um, and you think these like little stones are quite compacted. This pumice stone is quite compacted, but if you loosen it up, it becomes sort of, you know, like balls and they're just kind of sliding in. And, and basically it's, it's imposing a threat to the excavated area below. So the reason for region five excavations was actually to consolidate and stabilize the edges of this excavated area to, to stop the risk of it collapsing and damaging the excavated area. So they have been doing some more excavation, but it's kind of frowned upon in the sense that they would never open up another massive excavation to uncover that third without a very good cause for for con- uh, for conservation because we've got to manage what we actually have already on display and 
poor Pompeii went through a very bad period of, of neglect and walls were falling down. Although admittedly, most of the time it was modern restoration of those walls that was falling down and not the Roman ones. So I, I'll trumpet Roman, Roman construction. <laughs> it's actually still good, even after all these years. But then uh, they got a whole series of money from the European Union. They got about 105 million euros. And this started this massive conservation campaign to, to, to look after what we've got and to leave that one third for, for future generations. And I think that's really important in the sense of conservation and, and doing that because excavation has changed. So we're talking about the rediscovery in 1748. The idea of what we can learn from the site has changed so much in that time. We're now looking at the DNA of skeletons. They were barely looking at skeletons in 1748. And most recently in the bar in Pompeii, they found a new bar building and in the counter of the bar, there are these sunken vessels and in them, they found the residue of food. And now for ages, we've had loads of these. There's 164 bars or whatever in Pompeii. And we've had loads of, you know, examples of these sunken, they're called dolia. They're basically base, big, big ceramic vessels. But we always thought that there was dried food in them. And then suddenly, two years ago, a new bar gets discovered and they've actually found bones an idea that there's hot food in them, which is actually against Roman law. So again, you know, we have this lovely thing about Roman law stands, but actually what the people are doing is completely different. Um, and this bar owner has now been found out 2,000 years later. I think it was the, there's a pork and, and fish stew or something. So sort of early, early surf and turf meal. But, you know, 50 years ago, we might not have had the analysis to, to, to find these things out. And I think then to leave a third of the city uncovered is, is good because then, yeah, the, the, we can ask more probing questions with different technologies um, in future years. So although we're dying to know what's underneath, I'm kind of okay with it not being dug in our lifetime. So you've mentioned that two thirds of Pompeii has been excavated. How much of that will ordinary people be able to see when they go and visit? Uh, well, it's opening up more and more. The majority, I would say, is now is now visible to the to the general public. It's it's gone through periods of being very open and then them closing off areas because they're deemed unsafe. But because of this conservation money, they've done a lot to make the roads accessible and to wheelchairs as well to wheelchair access. So it's actually opened up. A, a, I mean, I've worked there for nearly 20 years on and off. And, and it, it, the difference from when I arrived to now is, is, is incredible. The, the back streets have started opening up, which means that the trip's much more pleasurable because people can spread out more. There was, there was a time where, yeah, there weren't very many places open and you did feel, you know, probably it was most reminiscent of, of Roman Pompeii's where the streets were filled with people. But now a lot more houses are open and they're done on rotation to make sure that, you know, the wear and tear in one house is kind of, you know, limited. So you only have it open for a morning and then something else opens up in, in, the, uh, in the afternoon while that one's closed. Yeah, I think a trip to Pompeii nowadays, I mean, a COVID aside, uh, is is a fantastic experience. Um, a lot more has opened up and a lot more looks great. I mean, they've done, they have done an amazing job at, at 
conservation in some of the lesser known buildings as well, not just, you know, your your bog standard sort of big sort of bath houses and things like that. It's like the smaller houses as well. Um, ones that I hadn't visited are now open. So yeah, go, go to Pompeii. That was Sophie Hay. There's plenty more on Pompeii and on the Roman era more broadly at our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Bushini Collie.